Okay, welcome back everybody to the Memorations Podcast. Today I am joined by my colleague, uh, Tina Sicker. Hello, Tina. Hi. Uh, Tina's a lecturer in media and cultural studies and we are going to talk about loads of stuff today. Before we get into anything, do you just want to tell us about your background, interests and teaching and research? Yeah, um, as you can probably tell, the, the audience can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from the UK. <laughs> so I'm Canadian, I grew up in Vancouver, did um, my, all of my sort of academic work in Canada, either in uh, Vancouver or out east in Toronto and Ottawa. Communication studies, uh, and I did a book in communication studies uh, as well. Um, interests really vary, but a lot of it is down to studies of, of gender, philosophy of science, um, looking at environmental issues and, and food. Um, I discuss issues of race as well, but it's sort of about how we construct knowledge in different spheres and, and how we validate that knowledge. Um, and I'm writing a book right now on uh, me too and consent and uh, restorative justice yeah i mean before we get into any specifics about your research i just thought given what's happened this week um with a levels and there's been obviously lots of talk about university places and stuff like that uh, a debate came up on i think it started on twitter and then managed to kind of spread about um mickey mouse subjects and media studies being a Mickey Mouse subject, uh, which was always always a thing you used to hear when I was back when I was doing my A levels, and I honestly thought that lessons had been learnt to the point where people realised how ridiculous it was to overlook the significance of studying media and having people being media literate and having critical thinking around media. Um, do you just want to talk about the the importance, what from your perspective, the importance of studying media and why it matters so much? Yeah, I, I mean, I find it really frustrating um, the the way that it's sort of looked at as yeah, like a Mickey Mouse subject. Um, I I think that you know media is is such and communication in general is such a large and interdisciplinary you know area of research. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with how we create cultures and how we negotiate ideas and how those ideas spread and how they can hinder or help democracy. Um, they can be entertaining, you know, as well. And so it's that kind of cultural production. Um, and it's so that critical analysis of ideas that come out of media uh, scholarship that for some reason just is not translating to a general reputation of the field. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's interesting too because in 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 the states, I know that there is a stream of communication studies which is very administrative, and it's sort of like hived off from English. And so I thought that maybe it was it's like a moderated English studies. You take communication, right. and so I thought some of that reputation was maybe rubbing off and and infecting the larger reputation. But it seems that you know media and it's an easy course for some reason has just become, you know, together, like put together. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why it still persists. 
the A-level thing, I think, is really interesting, too, in terms of the way the algorithm has come up for scrutiny, because that's part of media studies, too. It's that, you know, these technical systems that are that through which we produce knowledge and what goes into those systems. And if, you know, we are structuring them to those hierarchies that exist in society become mm. reflected in the algorithms. And I think that yeah. you know, that's happened here. That's a really important point, actually. Somebody was, I was seeing a friend was saying online the other day, why does everyone keep saying that the, the algorithm was faulty or the algorithm didn't work? He said the algorithm did exactly what it was meant to do. It was meant to do what it did. And, and the way in which certain uh, students of certain backgrounds got a worse deal out of it, it was, it was doing what it was designed to do. It wasn't faulty. So we should be looking at it in an ideological context rather than some kind of numbers game that's just reducible down to uh, a method on a computer. There was more to it than that. Yeah, I like what Kathy O'Neill, she wrote a book, Weapons of Math Destruction, and she talks about algorithms as like garbage in, garbage out. That if you're just putting those, you know, inequalities into the algorithm, you're going to get the same ones that come right out. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your research on food then? Because I, I, I find that really, really interesting. It's something I don't know much about. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I've been trying in, in different ways to connect some of the really interesting stuff that's going around um, in food studies, generally sort of hives off from sociology and bring it more into media and media studies. And so I've been doing a little bit of work on on how different social movements um, from health movements to intellectual movements, political movements, uh, use food as a marker of identity. Um, and of culture and of, of a way to kind of communicate that through consumption. So it's like this really interesting kind of like material, um, this use of material um, also symbolic to um, reflect identity and representation. And so for the political side, I do work on, you know, how um, different political movements like the intellectual dark web and more far-right movements um, and also vegan movements you know that that political ideology and food consumption is really fusing together one of the really interesting things i was looking at is in in portland where you had you know the uprising there and you had you know street battles for days um, that uh, one of the symbols of that sort of social solidarity between um, the activists there was this guy who put up a, a rib shop and it became called, it was called Riot Ribs. And it was just like in the middle of like smoke grenades and tear gas was this like stand where people were getting ribs every day consistently. Um, and so it became like this marker, which I found really quite interesting in the context of even Portland, which is notoriously kind of more like vegan and, and, you know, very health conscious, but it was this like, yeah, I just found it really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've done some research about the intellectual dark web, you mentioned a moment ago. What, what did you, you did a paper about food and the intellectual dark web, didn't you? Yeah. Do you, wanna, yeah. do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And so the argument I was making there was that there is this really interesting phenomenon of, of the way that, uh, food consumption was being uh, used as, again, a marker of, of that collective kind of group identity between 
followers usually of the intellectual dark web, but also by sort of the the, the leaders or the the proponents of of that political views. Um, and so you had um, particularly this focus on meat consumption, um, you know, that kind of masculine, you know, back to gender norms, um, consumption of meat as being not only healthy, but being an appropriate expression of political identity. So it was a little, a little sort of going back to like the way Carol Adams talks about meat as masculinity, but it was being uh, shown in a very different way because it was, um, it fused with health discourse. Um, right. And you know, how to kind of have appropriate health and be the best you can. And some of that uplift of that, um, you know, that um, do it yourself, uh, self help ethos that like Jordan Peterson had, you know, at some point as well. Right. Um, so that if I remember rightly, didn't Sir Jordan Peterson went to a meat only? He was just eating steaks, wasn't he? Yeah. He was steak and greens, and then just steaks. Yeah. Um, and now I've, I've, and his daughter also writes a blog about this stuff as well, doesn't he? Did you look at any of that? Yeah, and she, it, a lot of that, um, like the podcast that she has on that, um, she says that it treated her autoimmune disease. So that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, she had a podcast and she wrote a book and her dad said that, you know, really like Jordan Peterson, her father said that it had really helped his health. Um, but um, it's, it's, you know, the, the discourse I just found really quite interesting because it came down to these, you know, reflecting these ideas about cultural values and meat and, and really that, yeah, that just that, that kind of, masculine focus on men eat meat, women eat salads um, binary that you often find. And then I was kind of discussing how even, um, you know, some scholars or, or thinkers like Sam Harris, who is not vegan or, but says that that's probably the best way to, to eat, um, you know, and admits it, um, that there was this way that they started talking about vegan and more vegetarian diets through the lens of don't worry, you can still have the same kinds of body types and the same kinds of activities and sort of do it in a way that doesn't challenge your masculinity. So it was like how those foods are really quite gendered and they were being used in political discourse. If I remember rightly as well, Sam Harris was, went vegetarian for a while and then had to go, then had to eat meat again for health reasons, whatever they may have been. But taught, he's talked a lot about the, um, Oh, this isn't my area of expertise at all, but uh, what do you call it when you you can s sort of manufacture meat without it? Because there's a lot of work research going into this. Is the possibility of uh, reproducing and manufacturing real meat, but without actually breeding and slaughtering animals? Yeah, I just just wrote a, a piece on lab lab grown meat. So it's like, yeah, right. that it's actually done in a laboratory. So it's, you know, those, even those um, ethical concerns around manufacturing and environmental concerns would be taken care of. Um, and so, yeah, that there was, uh, you know, there's conversations around that as well. Um, and then also, you know, um, the processed meats, like the faux meat, 
that you can buy and how sometimes, you know, that can use a lot of water and soy and, and not be particularly healthy as well. So it's this, yeah, it's, it's, I, I find it really, really interesting because each political movement is starting to use food and meat in a really, you know, quite interesting way. And even, you know, can even go back to racialized discourses. So arguments, you know, some, some people on the far right were saying that milk drinking was particularly like a white identity thing, you know, where they were using genetic arguments to say that um, people who were or Caucasian were more evolved because they could um, process milk. And so you had these people having these like milk ins where they would just go on YouTube and drink a lot of milk uh, to show their white identity. Very strange. But there's no genetic basis for that. There's no like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really extraordinary how that that works. Yeah, that's, I've never heard of that. Um, in, ter in terms of the intellectual dark web, we were talking before. I, I find that really—it's been a really fascinating thing. I mean, I've written a—I've written a piece about it in terms of its kind of the, the 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 cohesive narrative that binds so many different people. Because it, 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 I do see some debates online where it gets dismissed as being uh, right wing and alt right and so on, but actually there's a real eclectic mix of people in under in the into in the intellectual dark web and i found it really fascinating the way in which this this kind of metaphor was used by eric weinstein and then it's become this kind of accommodating ground for all these different uh, conversations and voices and people with different political leanings to talk but what was do you want to say anything about us about the intellectual dark web from your perspective? Like, what do you, why do you think this thing has cottoned on and and been so popular, or not popular in many cases at all? Either way, it's really caused a stir, hasn't it? Yeah, I think for me it was really interesting because when I was a PhD student, um, I was at York University and in Toronto, and um, I was was doing a PhD in psychology and was like oh Jordan Peterson is doing like a talk you know do you want to just come by the campus and we'll go to the talk and so I went to it and it, it, it wasn't particular it was a scholarly talk so it wasn't particularly you know um, like there wasn't anything that, that was uh, you know controversial it was maybe 2006 or something like that um, and and so I then started to hear about him much more later on and then there was the whole issue with the pronouns um, and then Barry Weiss's piece came out um, on the intellectual dark web. And so I find the political movement itself, you know, it, it, it sort of carved out a space that is not far right um, by any means. I mean, you, you would kind of think, you know, Sam Harris, for example, being sort of liberal and Richard Dawkins as well. Um, but um, I think the core ideas around, you know, some of it around hierarchy and, um, of, of, of these natural hierarchies, I find problematic. Mm. Um, and I think that some of it, you know, around the way that talk about like social justice warriors and how there's a skepticism sometimes around identity as an important category for organizing society or knowledge. 
um, I have a problem with. Um, some of the stuff on gender and women and women's roles, I think, can be particularly problematic and race as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hierarchy stuff. Um, the, the evolutionary conversations around hierarchy um, cause quite a lot of debate with, particularly with Jordan Peterson's talked about them, uh, talked about it as well. It, it, Peterson's a funny one because on he's made the point that he's made one point that I really agree with, which is that hierarchies, it's what goes on within hierarchies that we should be concerned by. So the fact that hierarchies will always occur and it's what goes on within them that we should keep in check. I really agree with, but the, the idea that um, I know less about um, are these kind of, or the arguments I, I understand less about are the, the biological and evolutionary arguments about how particular hierarchies form. Because I always come back to the idea that one of the evolutionary traits we have as humans is, is the ability to reason and adapt. And therefore, if we have that evolutionary trait and an ability to reason and adapt, we can always question the way in which our, our hierarchies form. And, and we have the ability to go, well, that might not be fair then. So don't, don't let that happen. So I don't yeah. know what you would say about that. Yeah, I, I find, I mean, I, I think that there are better metaphors than the hierarchy that, you know, when you can look like, you know, at feminist materialism or at different kinds of structures like rhizomes or assemblages where you get these kind of relations that form and then can be challenged and then reformed in different yes. ways yeah um that, that yeah i just find that that is a much more flexible and reflective of our present position um than than hierarchy and i think yeah. a lot of scholars are still back in that kind of yeah framework I think assemblages is much a much more helpful way. I think even then when I was talking, it's funny how we get, even as people who study language, we there's certain terms that we just carry on using because we go, well, that's you know, that's the term we always use. But actually, when you if you think about things in terms of assemblages, it's much it allows for that nuance that kind of gets lost in ideas of structured hierarchy. Yeah, I really like um, like Karen Barad's work or Rosie Bradotti does some really interesting stuff about just like you have these assemblages and then you do these like cuts of these different structures that cohere together for a little while and you can do that analysis that they might disassemble and then cohere differently elsewhere. Ah, uh, so yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I was talking to Tony Sampson in an earlier episode where he talks, talks about the assemblage brain. Mm. He talks about assemblages in relation to consciousness and stuff like that. It's fascinating stuff. Um, one thing we were talking about before in relation to the IGW. So even though I find some figures within it really fascinating, I, I like, I like uh, Brett Weinstein, um, I like, like Sam Harris. And, but the, there's a concern I have about IDW discourse that, is and somebody on the Joe Rogan and I forgot his name somebody on the Joe Rogan podcast the other week was talking about this thing called nut picking mm. and I just it concerns me slightly that um there's this there's this habit um in the IDW of going in and nut picking and what this was described as I've never heard this term before but 
we see a case like say the evergreen case for instance just this is an example um involving brett weinstein and then we take that as an example of say campus culture or this is what student activists are like or this is what academics are now like and this person was saying on the on the joe rogan podcast the way in which as well we'll uh, zoom in on a particular academic with say who's making a bonkers argument or something who says oh, this is symbolic of another problem that's just really widespread a representative of everybody working in social sciences and the humanities and so on but it's, it's not like that at all um again it's much more nuanced than that and there is space for civilized conversation and even disagreement um do you do you want to talk about that a little bit i know you talked about council culture recently and, and the, the nuances around that that get lost in public debates would you yeah i i mean i find it really interesting around campus culture particularly but i think that 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 kind of intellectual move of taking the extreme case and then making that representative of larger trends mm. happens all the time yeah uh, i've been having even conversations around prison abolition where it's like well what about the axe murderer you know it's like do you want to let out the axe murderer and i'm like what axe murderer are you talking about <laughs> you know it's like it's this like take those extreme cases and then try to um extrapolate them onto like you can't make policy off of the extreme case that's just not you know how how things should work and i think for campus culture and this idea that you've got an entire university system that is you know social justice oriented and entirely um you know on the left is just not representative of the way most campuses are um nor is it the case that there are constant controversies over speech um and i think that you know for for a university to say no i mean you have the right to say anything you want but you don't have the right to a platform in a university like that's the discretion of the students in the university like you can still go on a street and give your speech that's fine but it's this idea that you not only have the right to say it but you have the right to a platform so that everyone can hear you say it which i think is being quite you know confused and i think with cancel culture it's the same kind of thing it's that you know you're going on you know to the atlantic magazine decrying cancel culture from a platform that no one else is going to have access to no one whose speech could be you know no one from the marginalized group no one who's disempowered they don't have those platforms they've been perpetually canceled um and so it's it's um i, I don't think I don't think my thing is that like we should be canceling people. I think that it's that, you know, cancel culture when you when you have ideas that are harmful, I mean, harmful to the extent that they can incite violence, that they dehumanize people and, and say that you are not, you're, you know, that you're just, uh, you know, someone who can be dismissed, your humanity is dismissed. Then it becomes an issue where we have to take a closer look and say, okay, you know what what is going on here and and how can we um have conversations that are productive and not so toxic mm. yeah it's it's tricky it is it's a really tricky thing when when i heard you talking on you had a couple of media 
like mainstream media appearances for uh, I think I heard you on Five Live. Yeah. And I can't actually remember. Was it to do with J.K. Rowling? Was it uh, after the J.K. Rowling thing? No, it had to do with J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure. I remember thinking, I'm not sure that I have the same position as Tina on this. Maybe I'm more critical of council culture than she is, and maybe I'm more le- lenient in terms of us who we who we should allow to speak and and therefore debate with and potentially use campuses to uh, challenge certain ideas, which you know may be a painful process when you've got the person there, but actually what comes out of it is much more helpful. I think that's what I was thinking in my position. But equally, when you were making the case you were making. I thought, well, this is also an example of somebody who's making this, taking this position, and isn't this hysterical, outraged stereotype, but keeps getting associated with it. And I think constantly, this is why I, I, I'm fascinated with the intellectual dark web, is because as, as much as I like some of the, even the people I disagree with, I find quite engaging, and I like, I like, like some of the stuff that goes on within it and the discussions within it. We can't keep um representing things as these really unreasonable people represent the universities and the mainstream media and then these people can't be heard because as you just said well they clearly can be heard um and i just think so the point i wanted to get to was that even in my teaching like i've i've talked about jordan peterson in classes and the students don't get outraged that he's appearing on the lecture slides. And they don't get outraged that, because there's some classes, because I do stuff on mythology. Mm-hmm. So he's really useful when he talks about mythological storytelling and archetypes and understanding how stories can be read and psychology. I sometimes say to the students, okay, you might be aware of this figure in relation to these other debates where he's quite controversial. Let's, let's put that to one side for a minute and just look at this and see if we find this useful, see if he's got some stuff to say that, and the stu- some students said, look, there was a Canadian student who said to me, I really don't like Jordan Peterson. I don't like his politics, but he's been, he has been really useful for, on this module in other ways. And it was, now that, whether one agrees with that or not, is always besides the point. It's the point there, the, well, the reason I think that's interesting is because the sh- students are so much more nuanced and reasonable and sensible that this hysterical kind of stereotype that I, was, I think is being formed about young students these just particularly the youth of today sort of thing snowflake all that kind of stuff i think we need to do a better job of of speaking out on their behalf and saying look this really isn't what campus culture is like yeah and and i find it really Interesting because the the piece that I think that HuffPost and and BBC saw to to contact me was around uh, a piece I did for the conversation where I talked about how um, cultural theory can be used to think about whether or not you want to consume a piece of art or culture from someone that's been cancelled in like quotation marks. And so I talked about Barth and and that like you know Roland Barth's sort of idea of um, the death of the author. And yeah. so you know, can we maybe say that, you know, like TV shows and movies, there's a division of labor, you know, just because if one person has been, um, you know, found to have harassed or assaulted someone, you know, you have to take into consideration that they're not the 
the sole producer, that, that it is kind of perpetuating this great man theory of, of art and history, that it's this like, you know, the, the, the sole person in a room comes up with this and this piece of art emerges. And that just sort of take a more nuanced stance on the kind of art we call, we, we, we consume. And so I really find that when I do bring controversial ideas or pieces of art or culture into um, the, the classroom, that students are quite able to, um, to assess and talk about it in ways that are really sophisticated and not, you know, out of fear or representative of this kind of like snowflake um, imp impression that we have, like they're just not like that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the only times when I, I've had, I had one particular experience of people being unreasonable was actually not with students at all, it was with academics. It was at a it was at a conference where I was talking about I can't remember the details of the paper now, but I was talking about uh, Russell Brand and Jordan Peterson because of their the podcasts that they did together, and looking at Carl the 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 way in which they talk about Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. So um, when they both Brand and Peterson, who have very different politics, both really like Carl Jung and use his work a lot when they're talking and I was looking at the conversation they had and trying to partly look at the way in which Jung even though people sometimes say I'm talking about psychology now I'm not doing politics it's like you really can't it's not as simple as that you just, um, Jungian concepts and theories can be used to accommodate these different political positions but also the way in which they spoke to each other was also they were both very accommodating of each other as well they had this really civilized constructed discussion um it's one of, one of those occasions where peterson didn't get so like <laughs> wound up but um i tried to talk about that and there's a couple of people really angry at this conference i could tell they were angry the q a came up and um because russell brown talks about the 12 steps so the 12 steps of recovery in terms of addiction um and I was talking about that because there's addiction in my family. So I, and I've seen how the 12 steps works for family member recovering from heroin addiction, which is like Russell Brand. And so I was talking about that stuff. And then Peterson's obviously got the 12 rules for life. <laughs> so, so, so these two people in the, in the audience said, well, you've got him with his 12 and he's a terrible misogynistic bloke with his, and he's got his 12 steps. And then you've got this other uh, sexist bloke who's got his 12 rules and uh, all these other terrible things about how similar they are. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think 12 was the link. And, uh, and I said, well, just if you go and watch this conversation that they had, the, re the reason I'm talking about it is for these reasons. And, and they just, one, one person who's particularly angry just folded their arms and said, well, I'm not looking at anything involving Peterson because he's because he's our Trump, meaning this person obviously Canadian. Yeah. And I just thought I've got no problem with people having their opinion, and if they you know don't like Brand or Peterson for whatever reason, like fine. But as academics doing research in this kind of stuff, we're not, and especially if we want to break down these these stereotypes of 
unreasonable lefty outraged whatever that's not conducive to the progressive conversations we need to be having yeah and and i think it's this you know like take up the ideas if you're going to disagree yeah. um you know that that it, it, especially in an environment where it's like a conference it's like okay if, if you're going to disagree then disagree on on the ideas like disassemble those hmm. um not necessary and, and and the fact that there was this you know um space where i, I mean i could say a, a similar thing about the ezra klein sam harris um sort of like two-hour podcast they did together oh, yeah um, you know where where it becomes this you know i i think it it you know, I would say that it's probably not as, it, it was pretty civil, like it wasn't, mm. you know, um, bad or anything. And, and I think that they got their points across, but they focused on the ideas. Yeah. It wasn't this, this kind of, um, uh, yeah, the, the, just going after a person and saying that, no, I'm not going to listen. It just doesn't work. Like it, 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 it just, uh, makes it more more difficult um yeah yeah have you before we because i'm aware that we're going to run out of time at some point what i wanted to talk to you about was something we discussed earlier it, especially in relation to current events the way in which um certain groups like black lives matter and me too they're kind of because of the things going on at the moment we've got the certain groups gaining more attention and more popularity um and becoming slightly more mainstream is probably the wrong term but you, you know what i mean um and having to try and work out some of the political contentions and potential contradictions within those movements do you want to talk a little bit about that because i thought it was really interesting you were telling me stuff that i was completely unaware of yeah, uh, I'm right now writing a, a book um, on uh, sort of ideas around sexual consent and some of the contradictions within Me Too. So one of the, the key ones that, you know, we were talking about that I find really interesting is around Me Too's really focus on carceral feminism. So the end goal is to have, you know, someone in jail. And how I was really interested in this in, this contradiction between um, Me Too activists and celebrities in particular that are supportive of Black Lives Matter, one of whose key platforms is prison abolition mm. and, and, you know, decarceration. Um, and so that there's this, this disjuncture between put them all in jail, you know, the prison system is racialized and doesn't work, that I'm really interested in and I'm sort of looking at other forms of justice around like transformational restorative justice practices, um, changing our ideas around consent to better fit realities. Um, so really exploring different models of sexual autonomy. Um, but asking the question of is there a way to articulate a kind of model of sexual autonomy that is consistent with the norms and gender hierarchies we have, maybe in a way to deconstruct them, but also supportive of decarceration. So, you know, is it like a problem in feminism? It, is it a 
problem in the history of, of rape law and assault law. You know, how can we think about restorative justice in, in that context? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that contradiction I was finding really interesting. There has been some, like a few articles, uh, media ones about Me Too and the need for transformative justice. Mm. Um, you know, because it, I mean, the, the way that the cases come to court and, and it's just like it doesn't work in terms of the statistics or clear up rates and, and satisfaction of victims, it, it's quite, you know, bad. So it's like, what are these other models? And I think mm. Black Lives Matter has a much better approach than Me Too does. Right. Yeah, I mean, in terms of Black Lives Matter, what another thing we were talking about early on was at some stage it's going to, the, the, I think these these debates are going to come up in terms of um, the principles of Black Lives Matter that so many people agree with and so many people are on board with and absolutely fine with, but then some um, groups or agendas within the movement have other um, agendas such, such as uh, abolishing capitalism or getting rid of the police mm -hmm. that that a lot of people who are who are supporting black lives matter now who might not be quite so familiar with these debates and discussions either are also going to be like well hold on i do support black lives matter but i don't agree with abolishing capitalism i don't know what you mean by abolishing the police but i've seen you talking about the the, the debate about policing before where you said well it's not about <laughs> taking the police force now and just shutting it down and then go right what should we do instead what you're saying is if you invest more in other things like um well we were talking about addiction a minute ago so mental health or support for addiction or, or all these other things then you wouldn't need so the, the the extreme or you wouldn't need this kind of policing that we are currently that we currently need now which is so conflict based is that am i getting that right yeah yeah absolutely and it's this idea that that not only is it is it not working in the sense of you know it 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 is not serving the people who are incarcerated who come out worse than they go in in a worse you know situation mm. um uh, but also the victims tend to not you know it's an adversarial system usually the 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 person is put on trial themselves you know their past behavior or you know what they wore all all of that you know can be can be really traumatizing but i think that what what prison abolition is really about is that you know that there would be process of defunding looking at nonviolent crime yeah. um, taking a public health model where if you did have that you know that serial rapist it could be like a public health holding like there there are different approaches to it but you know, having more social supports, mental health being taken care of by public health workers, this idea of pods of accountability, um, where, you know, if, if something went wrong, you wouldn't necessarily have to call the, the police. There would be like someone who is in the community that, that you would call. And these are all, you know, types of, of community accountability that, were there before policing. Policing's, you know, a couple hundred, you know, not even years old um, in the in the way that we know it. Um, so that there were these models of of safety and of care that were present before. And it's about, you know, 
bringing those back, although there, there was a really good argument around the problem with social work and social workers as a model as well, because in Canada, the, there's the, you know, the, the legacy of social workers around um, family breakups in Aboriginal communities, because it was social workers that came in and took kids from Aboriginal kids and Indigenous oh, kids. Right, from their, yeah. yeah, so there, there's, there's also that aspect to it, that it has to be a systemic change of non kind of, you know, forceful policing practices. Mm. Yeah. I think yeah, the main point for me, I think, is that if we talked about all of these other alternative approaches to policing or alternatives from policing, um, or just as forms of social support that we need in society, if we just talked about them uh, rather than, because at the moment, I think when it's, when the argument's pitched around, say, abolishing the police, it's really hard to get to the point of, of those really specific examples of things in the community that might be really, really helpful because people keep coming back to you, yeah, but you can't abolish the police. And I just feel like the debate itself would benefit from, look, okay, look, we are where we are. We've got, we've, we have a police force. Maybe there'd be less pressure on the police if we did all these other things. And I think if, if we, if we really had radical reform that brings in all of these other community support things and uh, stuff for mental health and addiction and so on, you, you may see radical change that just simply doesn't require policing in the same... I, I personally think you will always have and need a some kind of police service. But service is the key word there. Maybe it would be more like a police service that's always in one way or another required rather than something that is either so conflict-based, so overstretched, um, or in, in an American, American term, so military. Yeah, I, I like to say like, like abolish militarized policing. Like mm. that, that's sort of the way that it, it works. And, and also more training and, and not having this kind of, you know, gung-ho, like Rambo style type of adversarial relation to communities and so that there are larger structures of racism there that need to, need to be attended to and transphobia also um, that have to be attended to. Mm. I don't know if you have you seen Flint Town on Netflix? No, no I haven't. It, it follows this um, so Flint Town I think it had one of the worst it had one of the worst crime rates in America um, and this police chief came in and through these kind of military, more military practices, he really clamped down on gangs and gang leaders and dealers. And he brought the crime um, and murder rate right down. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of, there was so much uh, animosity towards the community that they almost didn't get, because they have this thing in America where they, they have their standard funding but then you can also get this top up funding from like your community, but the community vote on whether they want to give the police force that funding. Yeah. And I think I, if I remember rightly, they had the vote and I think they just about held on to it, but then something happened with the council and a certain amount of funding was withdrawn or something. And yeah. then, the, and then the rate went back up again. And I thought, well, that's a perfect example of 
because the structural stuff and the social and community issues and the causes of poverty and crime aren't being addressed you've got this constant battle between bringing it down with these military kind of practices being hated by a community for it and potentially not getting the support you need for it and then the crime goes back up again it's just this endless cycle yeah and i know that happens in brazil there's been cycles of that in the, in the favelas they'll like clamp down and then they'll put the pressure off and then it goes back up again yeah yeah because the structures remain the same yeah 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 really interesting stuff i've got a feeling that we're running out of time here so <laughs> um thank you very much for coming on thank you for having me and uh i'm sure i'll end up using this in a class or two and uh, i'm sure the students who enjoy listening to it as well um i'll speak to you soon thank you yeah. no all right bye